Welcome to Sardisms, where we take great ideas and bring them together to have great conversations. This episode features Dr. Yusuf Smith, who was an NHS doctor that ultimately decided to leave. Yusuf caught our eye when he tweeted 12 reflections of his time within the NHS. He is now focused on his business, Propane Fitness, where he's still making an impact on people's health throughout the world. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Not at all. Looking forward to it. You hit three categories uh, of people. You wear three hats in my world. You're a medical doctor, although I don't know if you're still in clinical practice. We'll talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Two, uh, the fitness business, uh, Propane Fitness. You run with uh, Johnny. And then, uh, and then there's also kind of like business e-commerce not e-commerce but online business uh, development that you do as well yeah and the, there is actually although they seem like three very different colored and shaped hats you know it seems like one's a kind of trilby and one's a flat cap and whatever but they are they are actually all mm. connected the medical one actually comes first because we set up propane fitness maybe 2008 where and it was just as a soundboard for our own ideas just to get them out on paper because we were frustrated myself and Johnny at the amount of misinformation and conflicting stuff online. And so we wanted to just kind of synthesize our learnings and put it onto a blog. And over time, we started to realize that actually the underlying physiology of this stuff really fascinated me. And so that's what got me on the path to thinking, you know what, what's the logical conclusion of this? Probably clinical practice because you're applying an evidence basis to elicit an improvement in somebody's health or performance and applying it in a real world, world situation. So after graduating, Johnny and I were working in finance. I then applied to become a doctor. And then over time, kind of as a mistake because of the type of content that we were putting out on propane, it was quite evidence-based, quite physiology heavy the the type of people that were following our content tended not to be average Joes. They tended to either be athletes or other people in the fitness industry who started to inquire saying, oh, do you know what? Can you actually help me with my own fitness business? Can you help me with my own systems for coaching clients and so on? And so that's how the, the third hat kind of came about from that because it was then just saying, well, we're getting a lot of people asking for this. So let's see if we can help them with their marketing and their coaching delivery systems. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. In fact, you're, the reason that you appeared on my radar is because you actually sit within two worlds um, that are familiar to me. It, on Twitter, I think I probably sit in two things. One is health tech, and uh, as, a, as a medical revalidation company, obviously, we're involved very heavily in health tech. And so I follow lots of doctors and things on Twitter and particularly NHS doctors. And then there's this uh, sort of self-improvement world that I'm also fascinated in. I, I do weight lift a bit, not as much as I should. Don't lift every day as I should do <laughs> or three times a week. Um, and so you appeared, I think, on a, as a conjunction between those two worlds, but on a specific tweet, which I think is your most popular tweet on Twitter. So do you know what it, it was until I shared some silly meme about like a nineties screensaver on windows 95. Oh yeah. Yeah. I saw and that. It just went yeah. absolutely nuts. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it, I was the, discounting it, it always one. happens with posting content that like it's the throwaway stuff that just seems mm -hmm. to absolutely take off. Yeah. And so you can never predict it. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Well, the, um, the most serious tweet that you've done, I guess <laughs> that is the most popular, 
And depressingly, it's sort of not a cheer. I don't know. Is it a cheery subject? But it's you saying, you know, I just quit being a doctor for the NHS. And here's 14 things. 12. 12. Here are 12 reflections. I think this is because there's actually 14 listed underneath it. You are right. A lot of people were like, oh, actually, you can't count. You went through all of med school <laughs> and you count. can't count as 14. You're like, okay, yeah, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> so there, here are 12 reflections underneath it. And one of them was essentially about how much admin goes on uh, as a doctor um, and the frustrations of technology. And you did this excellent YouTube clip of a day in the life of a doctor. And it really broke that down and showed you how much of your time was taken up with technology and technological problems. Now, as a podcast platform, I cannot promise you the reach of Chris Williamson. I think just interviewed Jordan Peterson and others. So, you know. Yeah, he's still in, uh, in Texas at the minute. Smashing it. Yeah, um, yeah. It's, it's great. I've been following him for a while and it's really good to see see that taking off. He's also the reason that my mum bought me a B-Day for Christmas as well. Oh, wow. success. <laughs> Lucky you. <laughs> He's got this life hacks book and, in, and within it is uh, basically buy a B-Day or a, a bum gun. <laughs> That's one of mine. Is it? <laughs> yeah. All, all, all the good ones in his book are mine, obviously. So yeah, obviously. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So you've, done, you've done quite a lot with him, haven't you? you you're a regular on there. Yeah. So, um, it was actually, we, we've had a podcast for quite a while and one day, you know, we, cause we, we've been mates for, for a long time and he was like, Oh, can I come on? We were like, yeah, let's talk about CrossFit. And I think he just caught the bug. It's a lot of fun as you, as you guys, as you guys know. And so, um, he then took it a lot more seriously than, than we have. And he's, yeah, he's absolutely flown. Yeah. But yeah, you mentioned about the, um, the health tech, the, the time wasting or the, the organizational inefficiencies and frictions that you face day to day. And I think this is endemic to any large organization, but I think one of the reasons that that thread resonated so much with people is that everybody has been struggling with, with this thing of you're trained and qualified for five to seven years to do a specific task. In my case, diagnosing and treating illness in patients and probably 10% of the day is actually doing that stuff. The rest of it, all of the supporting structures. And in that 90%, a lot of it is stuff that I don't believe we should be doing at all. And actually we're just holding, paste, pasting together the cracks in an organization. You know, when you're spending um, several hours every day wrestling with a printer jam or you print out a sticker to get some bloods from someone and it goes to a random printer in the in the department and you have to walk around and do, do the rounds and try and find which one it's going to. And then you're on the phone to it and you're number 42 in the queue. And, and you just think that like, I'm, you know, I'm here, I'm being paid by the hour. So if that's how you choose to allocate your highly trained human resources, that's, that's your decision. The onus is on you as an organization to do that, but it seems like a very poor allocation of those resources. Mm. And so it's difficult because the, the, the IT departments are really doing their best. Like they're having to field a lot of <laughs> complaints and difficulties and that they're, they're doing their best with the funding, with the resources that they have. But fundamentally there just isn't enough from the top down or it's being misallocated. Um, and then because of the fact the NHS staff are so industrious and so willing to just muck in and, and do what they can, they end up not producing a proper feedback loop where if you have seven computers in the A&E department and four of them 
have a broken S, P, and K on the keyboard. And so really, if you have one of those letters in your name, you can't, you can't log into those computers. And so it, if that happens, you know, people just end up finding a way and, and that doesn't get reported back up the chain. Then you get to the point where the, the management may not even be aware of these things because it's all been taped together. So anyway, I'm going to stop there because I, I could go on for, for hours about this. And I'm sure this isn't why you, why you got me on. <laughs> so in that video, it actually says, and then I had to open up a Microsoft Word document to work out what, you know, what you had to deal with for the day after the handover in the morning. And it says, uh, there's a little caption that comes up, holding back the tears. So okay. <laughs> it, was it the reason that you left? Or actually, what I was going to say is, look, look, we don't have the reach of Chris Williamson, unfortunately. Um, but what we do have is a very kind of niche group of people who go to things like NHS hack days, you know, we've got a very kind of health tech following. So um, I'll save you your fitness advice <laughs> for, for something else, but it'd be really interesting to sort of speak to that audience specifically about, you know, particularly your, how you're informed by your business and your, your business mentality and also fitness where it's kind of a systems approach, how we might be able to change that. You know, was that the reason that you left and was it because you could never see it changing or, or what? Yeah, good, good question. And I think a lot of your audience will resonate with some of the stuff that I've said. Probably some of the stuff you might think that I'm coming across as a bit entitled and a bit demanding and I should really just get on with it. And I, I totally understand that as well. I think I have been spoiled by the fact that we've been running propane, which is you know, it was literally a two-man company up until a couple of years ago. So in a small organization, you're super nimble. You can pivot on the spot and you can change all the systems that you use. And and so you're much, there's much less red tape. And so I think as a result, you get used to the fact that if you have even the slightest restriction in total throughput in your business, you look at what is the bottleneck and you say, okay, how can we widen that bottleneck and improve the total output of the business and therefore the revenues and the profits. That's not the case with larger organizations. You're very much subject to compatibility issues with certain bits of software or the fact that making a fix is going to, is going to require a lot of overhaul and multiple people to approve the systems. And, and I think the struggle that you guys will, will, will know and, and face is that if you're rolling out a change to a piece of software or a certain workflow in a live NHS system, you can't just pause patient care and go, oh, hang on, it's all done for maintenance. We're going to have to um, play around with this for a bit. You've got to roll it out live. So you've got to, you've got to do things so incrementally and make sure that patient safety isn't, isn't at risk. And that's a really difficult one to handle. Yeah. I mean, we definitely feel it because we've got one leg in the NHS and one leg sort of outside it mm. as a small SME business, you know, we only employ 25 people. It's not a massive company. And um, in fact, I just came off the back of a call where we were talking about this sort of need um, to create a staff master index. Um, I've got an honorary contract with Oxley's, which is a mental health trust. And um, we were talking about this sort of like a development gap that they've got in the middle. You know, a fundamental problem of the NHS is that it doesn't know who its staff are. And so you can't actually allocate that resource. You can't log them into systems easily. And, you know, it's, it's that, hence why you end up filling out Microsoft Word documents and things like that. But the, it came up that it was, oh, let's submit a business case to this. And I was like, well, can we just rapidly prototype something and then bring it to the next meeting? You know, can I, it'll take me a couple of days to produce 
an application and we can all look at it and actually see if that's and that mindset is 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 very different because when you're working in a small business that's that's the way you have to be in order mm, to survive absolutely there's a there's a guy i don't know if you've had him on your podcast called josh case he is an australian junior doctor who learned to code just as i don't know if if it was as a result of dealing with hospital systems and it you know it's it's highlighted to me as well that it's it's not just the nhs it's it's hospital systems in general because of all the, the moving parts but he had this problem with the microsoft word theater list of dealing with patient surgery handovers and, and theater lists for for morning surgeries and he wrote a, a script that saved the trust and estimated four hundred thousand dollars over the year and he wrote his experience about writing the code which was actually the, the easy part and he said the hard part was getting through all the mm. different <laughs> different barriers yeah. and backs and forth and getting that bit of script approved and and all the red tape and he has now quit medicine as well he's become a full-time developer um I don't know if it's necessarily because of frustration. I think it's always multi, multi-factor decisions with this kind of thing. As it was in my case, you know, that I can learn to live with the the systems. It's a little bit frustrating, but it's not it's not something that would be a deal breaker for me. I think it was a bunch of other things plus the the pull factor of other opportunities that I had. It's a bit of a weird question, I suppose. But if you were a doctor in the 60s or 70s, say, where perhaps technology was not, well, at least IT technology wasn't such a a critical part of your role, do you feel that you actually would have been doing more clinical care and therefore there wouldn't be such a strong push out the door? Yeah, well, I think if I was a doctor in the 60s, I'd be strangling people to get them anesthetized and putting leeches on people to suck out the bad (laughs) spirits. and um, 70s then. I'm trying to say uh, 1980s, maybe when computers were big things in rooms and people didn't really use them as. Yeah. Um, <laughs> have you ever thought about that? Whether you were just in medicine at the wrong time? I've spoken to older consultants about this, and it's fascinating to to see some of the differences in in all of this because there's there's big cultural changes. You know, I spoke to uh, a GP in her 60s the other day who was saying that it was commonplace for the consultant to kind of, you know, slap your bum as you, as you go in the room, or it was a lot, very sexist kind of misogynistic environment. And you know, you always get mistaken for a nurse. And, mm. and so that there was a lot of that, you know, just the, the problems of the time, but she said overall, the patient load and the stress was lower despite the kind of social issues because there just wasn't as much population demand and that, and so, and, and you were, you were very much thrust into it. Now, you're more protected as a junior doctor, but you're also limited in your scope of what you can do. Whereas really as a, as a junior doctor in the sixties or seventies, you, you're pretty much kind of left to your own devices and it, you know, it's, it's, yes, it would probably be good for building clinical experience, but not great for, um, for patient safety <laughs> in the long run yeah. as to how systems fit into that. Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, we've, I, I've experienced paper notes as well as digital notes. And, um, cause we, while I was working in the hospitals, we, we did a kind of changeover from, you know, you're doing a ward round. So you go into the cupboard and you get all the, the notes, which maybe weigh two or three kilos per, per bundle. And you're trying to find the right page and stuff. I prefer digital notes. I think it's, it, it's just each one carries its own, carries its own problems, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, mm. the, there is certainly potential and I'd, I'd love to see in 20, 30 years time, 
once we get through the the teething issues of what is apparently a very difficult <laughs> problem to to get through there is a potential for so much in medical technology if we have kind of one one click sign on um using blockchain technology to um to verify patient data to synchronizing between different patient databases and all of that in in theory could be amazing and so i'm i am still optimistic about this in general but i just think we're we're quite a way off at the moment yeah i feel like that's that thing though where you know if my grandmother had wheels she'd be a bus <laughs> you, those things are possible it's possible to have blockchain technology it's possible for prescriptions to be digitally signed you know when, when i look at prescriptions for example and they're they're time bounded and they've you know you need it's essentially public private key cryptography so you know people should be able to digitally sign them it should it shouldn't be a difficult thing to send a digitally signed document over email, WhatsApp, whatever you like, it, that's an easy thing. Like the technology is is fine. I guess I'm I'm less optimistic, and I'm a very optimistic person. I, I think mm. you might have just caused me <laughs> caught me in a depressive <laughs> mood. But um, it feels to me. Let me put it this way: in your world in fitness, right? If you took someone who was overweight, uh, well, actually, let me be an example. I'm not particularly as overweight as I was, but um, I've shrunk down a bit. But if you were able to wave a wand. And make me Love Island, Chris Williamson level fit or yourself, you know, like <laughs> get a six pack, bang. Yeah, it's potential to get someone there, but give it two years, would it have gone backwards? And it, because of the system in which they exist, you know, having the biscuits in a tin at home. Um, the culture. Know, uh, yeah, mm -hmm. the culture and, mm -hmm. the, and the actual system. I sometimes feel like you could come along or we could develop the perfect hospital system. We could roster everything. We could, uh, you know, all the job plans, all the capacity, all the demand. You could have um, a social login for, for um, you know, every application you use, that every Word document would actually be a... Careful, Kevin, you, you're getting me excited here. Like <laughs> <laughs> That world is possible. And I feel like we could put that into a hospital and I'll walk away and... Two years later, it would be the equivalent of a, that, you know, the fat man again. Everything would be on fire again. It would go back yeah. because of the selection process. You know, I always see it as like a Darwinian thing. It's like, what do you mm. reward? That's what makes me pessimistic. And I just wonder how we, we change that. My immediate thought is, this is a thing I hate. This is a, a, a statement posed as a question, right? But this is, I'm, I'm relaying how I feel about it. And I just wonder, as, as a business person and somebody who's been a doctor suffering that system, whether you feel the same, is it a systemic selection problem? Is it solvable without going the next layer up? I feel like procurement, for example, is somewhere where there's very little room for innovation because you you have to compare apples with apples. You have to write a feature list. It's not it's not problem-led, it's solution-led. Here's what we imagine to be the solution to this problem. Please, five suppliers come in and tell us how you can deliver the solution and we'll pick the cheapest one. That's the biscuit tin in the kitchen equivalent that makes you fat is You've, if you've got a procurement process that selects for bad innovation, vendor lock-in, you know, we don't we don't want to make it easy to log into the system outside of our system because we want to lock you into our identity network. And, uh, yeah. You know, does that resonate? It very much does. I think it, it's a it's a very astute observation you've made there as well about if you place an, a good or a new system or an efficient system upgrade into a culture that is not going to accept it, you're going to have this reversion to the mean and that's always going to happen. One of the most toxic features of an organization, in my opinion, 
is the mantra, we've always done it this way. Mm. I just think that is completely backward. If you say that, you're just accepting, well, like, because what's, what's that saying? I am resistant to any improvement. <laughs> it's, mm. or, or I, I'm not, I can't be bothered to pull up the carpets and clear out the, the stuff underneath. And so, yeah, I, I think you're right. That, that is a cultural problem. It is maybe a, a selection or a hiring problem. I don't think I, that the people I work with are clinicians, the nurses, um, associate practitioners, physicians, healthcare um, assistants. They are all extremely industrious and wanting to, to fix things, but usually they're not empowered to. So what ends up happening is, or, or they haven't got the capacity or the time to, because you just rammed all day. And so what the process improvements are left to is seven or 8,000 pound day rate to come in and take a very superficial view of process, clinical processes and then say, oh, here's some slideshows about vision narrative and here's what you should go away and do. If we close that loop and instead empower more clinicians at the front line, actually dealing with those problems and are acutely aware of the amount of time that's being wasted in things that are outside of their remit, then they can close that loop and improve those systems. And I, I think the culture from those guys is is there, but they just need to be empowered to do it. At the same time, you are right that, that there has to be some kind of incentive for that, just the same way as, and, and the, you know, that this is maybe another cultural cultural false belief that exists in public sector that doesn't exist in private sector, which is people are rational economic agents and we respond to financial incentives. <laughs> and so if you were to offer somebody a financial bonus for any amount of cost saving or time saving process improvement that they, that they do, or even it, it could be something as simple as five pound for every discharge, discharge summary that's, that's sent. And people scoff at the idea because, oh no, this is the NHS. We can't be doing private bonuses. But if a discharge summary isn't done and the trust is fined 400 pounds, oh, yeah. that's far more costly. Yeah. So mm. to me, it, it just seems to make sense. And there's a lot of these easy wins. And I think, as you said there, Kevin, as well, you, you were like, it should be quite straightforward to implement this stuff. It should be quite simple rather than having a shared drive where only one person can edit it at one time with the Microsoft word table that we copy each day and sign a date on and put the patient identifiable information, and then print it out and carry it around. Terrible for patient confidentiality, terrible for, for efficiency. We have technology for synchronized to-do lists. That's not a, that's not a, a revolutionary groundbreaking concept for a, for an app. Um, you know, there's, there's hundreds of or thousands of them available online. Um, as you said, you know, blockchain technology, maybe that's a bit of a stretch. Maybe that's a bit, a bit futuristic. We have speech to text for writing letters. We have wearable health trackers that synchronize with a, a, a cloud database. These, these bits of technology all exist. And so I, I think you're probably right. And I'm going to get off my hobby horse now that many of these things do exist and there has to be some form of acceptance at the center of the organization to bring these processes on board. Mm. How? <laughs> yeah, that's the big question, isn't it? Incentives. Sorry, we were too short podcast, I guess, to cover that. But it sounds like we're in agreement. But one of the things that concerns me is that actually it's not just a public-private thing, is it? Because actually, there's similar issues exist in the states. Basically, nobody has cracked this. Mm. Nobody has cracked this in any country 
as I can see, has cracked the perfect hospital management system, both clinical and administrative and logistical. And yet it feels like it should exist. And one of the things we're pushing is this sort of public money, public code idea, because as you've probably seen with some things like WordPress.org and WordPress.com, you can build a whole ecosystem around businesses built on, a, on an open source stack. I'm like, look, this applies to everybody. Can we get some groundswell? Oh, that's an incredible idea. Around like a, an open source stack. We have a, a World Health Organization that crowdsources all of the, the evidence basis and the scientific advancements. And we've seen that with vaccine rollouts and things. You're totally right. Why, why can't we do that with code? Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> We're just going to agree exactly. on things. <laughs> Even bum guns and bidets. <laughs> it seems to be difficult to move this big oil tanker that is the NHS and steer in the right direction. And as I think you pointed out in your your um, tweet thread, um, where you said, you know, the American system, the financial system there, we don't have that clinical, you don't have that financial incentive when you're acting as a doctor and things like that. I know that I know they're very different systems in that sense but they all have the same problems in every country it's a very difficult thing to steer around because there's such large organizations you've got the medicare and medicaid out in the states and it it just feels like a large organization problem and i'm starting to wonder whether the solution to this is to actually go to the developing world and put it in somewhere you know uh, southern asian countries that are like emerging and and have a rich kind of IT heritage or that's a great shot. Or somewhere where you can prove it from the bottom up and then go, hey NHS, let's go and do this. Then you can start with a blank slate. Because in theory, and you know, maybe there's developers listening to this that are shouting at the shouting at the speaker here and being like, no, come on, it's much more complicated than this. But okay, from a doctor, nurse, patient care, patient documentation process, for me it's you have entries on a, a database. Each entry is free text. You have the ability to do, run queries to that database and search instances of certain words. You don't need anything fancy. You don't need forms and things because if, if you can run queries to that text, then you've, you've got what you need to find. And, and obviously the date stamped and all of that. And then you have drugs, a bit more complicated because there's, there's more, I guess there's more fields with, with prescribing drugs. So you have, you have those and then you have jobs daily tasks, which is kind of the, the working memory of the organization. If we start with those absolute ground level systems and then work up again, but you've got to be super minimalistic about it. Cause I think part of the problem with the vendor lock-in that you've mentioned is that systems started out like that. And then when things get migrated, rather than being integrated, they just slap on a new thing on top of it and they slap on a new thing. And then it becomes this Frankenstein that's really slow and really hard to to, to manipulate and you can't actually search in the archives anymore and it doesn't sync it doesn't link and mm. um and then then you end up with problems again so but i suppose that's a that's a culture problem isn't it because that's only going to happen again unless we have a established international standard with open source code that says we're going to keep everything as standardized and consistent as possible and only iterate when there's consensus and if you don't like it you can fork it and do, do your own thing oh yeah yeah well if you're interested in public money public code come and join us and help us wave that flag because that's oh man i'd love to that's what we're about i mean we we've emerged as a appraisal revalidation company and we work primarily on workforce 
And what's happened is we've basically uh, got together a group of people from kind of NHS hack days and people who in, who've worked in NHS digital and, you know, we've interviewed a bunch of them on, on this podcast and we sort of brought them in and said, look, let's, let's try and get established some sort of open source platform to, to push it through. But my fear is that thing about it is not rewarded, mm. right? I call us like the axolotl of, um, of healthcare. We're like the Mexican walking fish. We're, we're, we're fish with legs. That, you know, <laughs> we're not rewarded by our environment for having the attributes that we have. And so we're, we're, we've got legs and we've got the attributes that I think you should have, but we have to change the environment around ourselves in order to, to match what is the right thing. And so, and so that's what we're trying to do with that process. What do you think is going to happen over the next five years at the current, with the current trend? The same, you know, I, it's kind of depressing. <laughs> the same until, until we change the ecosystem. I'm a big believer in like thinking in systems. Think, think of the same with my own uh, health, in fact. Uh, you know, I was, we, we can touch on the fitness thing, but I, I was obese of 225 pounds at five foot 11. You know, I'm down at 195 now, so still overweight, but not. Oh, amazing work. Yeah. And yeah. I've held that off for six years. Now I did that by having some basic systems versus goals as Scott Adams, a Dilbert guy calls them. You know, it wasn't about necessarily having, going to the gym X amount of times per week. It was like having a, a systemic approach to things and so mm. i'm kind of reaching out to people like yourself to sort of try and work out how we can create those systems for health technology so that so future medical doctors coming through don't face those same frustrations in in five years time but until we design that system until we until we think about the selection pressures around the, the things that we want we'll, we'll never get that yeah totally agree i think not only is there going to be, yes, population demand, funding um, demands, the systems themselves start to crack, but I think we're going to run into recruitment problems for clinicians within 10 years if things don't change. Because my generation are much more, well, our generation, I should say, are, are much more willing to just ditch something if it doesn't fit their if it doesn't suit their purposes if it doesn't um I, I don't think there's as much of this culture of like oh well i've made my decision now i better stick with it yeah. and so if there's better offers available and you don't feel adequately rewarded or empowered to make process improvements you'll just be like oh, do you know what i could make more money in the private sector i could make more money in clinical research i could i i could be i could get more sleep if i go and work for an investment bank like isn't that nuts mm -hmm. so um yeah, I think this is uh, it's something that's going to have to change. Otherwise, it's going to get to breaking point. And, you know, maybe that's what the powers that be want to happen. I don't know. I know it feels like, you know, every, every man with a hammer, what is it? Every guy with a hammer problem looks like, Sees everything as a nail. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously I work in health tech. And I'm like, well, the solution to this is to get out of the way. But one of the reasons that you, that you did appear on my radar was because of that video and because you did basically when you did your day, you confirmed my fears that actually technology <laughs> is, is the thing 
that oh, it's gets the in the way Absolutely. of so mm-hmm. much clinical time. And you, you wrote a lovely tweet about kind of like uh, finding your purpose in life as well, um, just under that stack, because I think you, did, you didn't want to put off uh, future medics training up for this career, right? I was worried about that. And yeah. so you said, you know, like find some time, freedom, satisfaction, impact, and money, is it? Find, find something that hits those five and then throw yourself at it, you know? And so it's, it's hard to have impact. It's hard to have satisfaction and it's hard to have freedom inside a system that's so constrained like that. So, that, I mean, that's kind of why I wanted to get you on and really sort of see if, see if we could work together on, on sussing this problem out. And- well, it, I'm so glad to see you guys doing a project like this and spearheading the, the open sourcing of health tech. Cause I just think this is exactly what's needed. Mm-hmm. And the, the fact that it's not a global effort and that everyone has their own proprietary system that, and, and it seems to me that everyone's kind of convinced themselves, oh, but no, because of the particular way that our clinic works, we need to have things set up in this particular way. And that, but come on, like at the end of the day, you've got patients requiring treatment and you have a multidisciplinary team that are doing treatments to the patients follow-ups, inpatient, outpatient, whatever, and documenting it. I don't think it needs to be several million versions of the, of the same thing. It, and as you say, if there's, if there's an option for forks and there's a core code base, then we've opened ourselves up to economies of scale. You can then access third world countries with a system that you can just give them out of the box. Yeah. 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 It seems like the way ahead. Funding it is hard because you're not really rewarded for taking that approach. And it's difficult to get money to fund that that sort of approach well there was um 37 billion for uh the prime minister's mates app yeah 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 i know and there was a thing in nhs in uh, the hsj today about nhs digital and um, director there and having a company and x amount of x million i think it was like three to eight million going off to the company that he was also a director of despite being Mm -hmm. a director at nhs digital at the same time yeah, I don't know. I don't know the answer to it. It's a shame to see that. I mean, I mean, I, I'm so, as I say, I'm so glad you guys are uh, behind this. This well, it's initiative. Not just us. The thing is, there's so many people so who want this. People. There are people who turn up to like NHS hack days, who are so passionate about it. And one of the first things in your tweet, Fred, was like, "Look, there are so many people who just care and will work really hard, and they will oh, work all despite these things." There are people who will get on a train, and go to a hack day where they are unpaid to build code to make the NHS work better. I'm just worried that that's a limited resource, that, that that's finite. You know, people's goodwill and trying to fix things and make things better. Mm. If they're repeatedly not rewarded for their efforts and it's repeatedly just rejected and instead all the funding and all the resources go into just janky systems and nepotism for their... Uh, mm. It just gets to the point where you say, well, ah, is it worth bothering? No. And I... I, I'm worried that it's going to get to that point. I'm glad there are still people that are still have the energy for that, but we are, you know, I, I'm repeating myself, but we are rational economic agents and we respond to incentives mm. in the long term. Yeah. It's not just monetary incentive though, is it? I mean, I think it's just even sense of purpose. The satisfaction, yeah. knowing that you, so yeah, impact, satisfaction, time, energy. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, I hope that we're wrong <laughs> and, I, and I hope that um, there are some big shifts that happen over the next next five to 10 years. From from what you've described there, it does sound like it, there's going to have to be 
something on the cultural or, or fundamental level that shifts direction and then things can start to align mm. yeah just talk about something more cheery yeah <laughs> i don't think yeah, that, I don't, actually i'm not pessimistic about it because there are there are really are honestly very motivated people and even people who, who've got all the battle scars that try to install mm. nhs ubuntu into the nhs uh you know there's people who've really really been banging this drum for a long time and i think i came along kind of like a little bit green and fresh like the new recruit the new privates arrived and he hasn't mm. been in battle yet and i'm like come on what are you doing down there in the dirt get up and uh you know i'm feeling it a bit <laughs> <laughs> but you but there are there are definitely people who, who are pushing in the right direction with it and i i do think we will get there in the end it's just a it's a it's a longer slog than I perhaps hoped. Yeah. It's got the right people for it. You know, every, all the people that I've encountered in the NHS are incredible people, mm. like really smart, really driven, um, really lovely. You know, the, I've, I, looking back, I really, I'm struggling to, to even count on one hand, mm. anyone who was a dick. It's just leveraging that, that immense human, human capital and pointing in the right direction, as you say. Are you still doing clinical work? Not this year. Um, just because my time has just been rammed with, with, uh, with propane demands, but we'll see how things go over the next, next couple of years. Do you think that you're making people healthier through propane fitness than you would be as a doctor? Do, is, if you could somehow have a bar chart mm. of your life as a doctor and your life doing propane fitness, do you think you'd actually a good question. put off diabetes and chronic problems more doing propane fitness than you would as a doctor. So as, as glib as it sounds like prevention is better than cure. You know, if you have someone who is late stage diabetic, there's, there's, yeah, you can improve their quality of life and you can manage complications of that disease, but preventing it from happening in the first place would yeah. be a massive saving cost wise and massive improvement to their, to their quality of life long-term. And you'll know about the, the, the quality uh, metric as well. Ali Abdul has a, a great um, perspective on this, which is that the average doctor supposedly saves seven lives in their career. That's the ones that you can truly say that's definitely a life saved. The rest of it is kind of, um, you know, law of a thousand cuts. You're, you're that's, that's not the right term for it, but, but you're, it, it's a slow, a slow burn with kind of drifting up people's lives. So he says, well, from a moral perspective, if I quit medicine and in fairness, he's doing very well financially. So he then says, if I donate 2000 pounds to the malaria foundation and get malaria nets, that definitively saves more lives than I ever could as a doctor. And so if I build up loads of capital and then donate a huge amount into something like that, I know that I've saved more lives overall. So he says, then what's the reason for me being a doctor and manually saving the lives? Well, it's probably more of a a personal satisfaction thing, but in a, on a volume level, it doesn't really make sense no. to answer your question about have, how does propane compare in that, in that sense, if we look at a per, per client, per, per patient basis, we've trained about 4,000 people over the last 12 years between myself and Johnny. Some of that's in group programs and, and once one coaching and so on. So, but did, did we improve their health? Maybe. There's some people that have had big transformations, like like you've described yourself, you know, previously being untrained, obese, and then going into very good shape. And they've probably added many years to their life. But I think there's still a chasm between healthcare and preventative medicine. 
So what I mean by that is that the people who are healthy the, or, or the people who go to the gyms and watch what they eat and everything, they, they were going to be healthy regardless and mm. they don't need much of a push. The people that we need to access and that we struggle to access continually from a healthcare system are the people in deprived areas or lack mm. the, um, the, the family background or socioeconomic um, influences to improve their health and take, take charge of the, the preventative health lifestyle stuff. And that's the real challenge of it. And I, I think this is where we're also maybe missing a referral system from primary care to personal trainers and to coaches and things. And I'm hoping this will evolve over the next few years as well, because we've seen the fitness industry is really boomed and it's continuing to boom. So social prescribing from a GP. Yeah. Social prescribing is a great example of it. And I think even a direct where level three personal trainers get, and it's existing in smatterings where they are doing exercise referral or accepting GP referrals and then taking someone under a publicly funded system to, to transform this and give people the, um, the boost that they need. And I, I do think it's similar to a driving instructor where once you can give someone the activation energy and the, the starting momentum to learn how to create an exercise routine, whether it's lifting weights, whether it's running, whatever, and the basics of nutrition, once they catch the bug, they're on their way. It's, it's what you said about systems. Once you give someone a few of those systems, they don't need a personal trainer for life. They, they're happy to to carry that on once they feel and see the benefits themselves. I know I, I found, I found myself sort of slightly angry, I guess, at the guidance that had been given to me <laughs> over decades around health and fitness. And, uh, the system that I adopted was to educate myself at every possibility about nutrition and fitness. So it wasn't like go to the gym all the time. It was when something appears, that is worth watching that hits that radar, read it, watch it, put it away, 10 minutes. And so a process of continual education. And the thing that came out of it was really different to what I had been told for decades. You know, the the Muller Light yogurt that was packed, <laughs> it was low fat and full of sugar. But I honestly ate that thing thinking that'll get me healthy. And I did the same with like things like innocent smoothies, which is like the most disgusting. I don't know whether it was invented by Satan, but like <laughs> to call it innocent and then pack it with more sugar than is in the can of Coke. Like the number of spoons, you know, if you were to have that many yeah. spoons of sugar in, into some water, you'd be like, whoa, what, what is this? It's, it's mad, isn't it? That you, you've had, and you're someone who is highly intelligent, highly motivated to read yeah. read up on this stuff and actually go, right, I'm going to try and look behind the curtain and yeah. get to the root of this. And it's taken you quite a while to, to figure that out. So some people have got no hope, you know? So it's it, the, the food industry has really pulled a, pulled a blinder on us. Mm. Yeah. Well, it's one hell of a metic um, machine to the food industry. Like it, it, it can and does influence so much of what we receive about what is healthy and you know, it's full of the money, really, isn't it? It's, you, you've got a mission to steer people away from that. This is why I think a lot of the fitness industry still lacks compassion for obese people. And they forget that the, the food industry has systematically 
been optimizing and engineering for our reward circuits to max, you know, optimize for how much food can you consume? If you look at some of the data on what they call the bliss point, which is the perfect combination of salty and sugary and fatty. And it's, mm. there are many foods that just hit that spot just right with the salted caramel and the butter. And, and this is just iterated to, to maximize for this. It's not like we have an epidemic of loss of willpower. It's something has changed on a systemic level and you then need a, an overwhelming force to, to get back to baseline again. I don't know if you've been to the States. Yes. Well, Mariah's from the States. <laughs> from there. Oh yeah, of course. Um, and you, you know, the average person gains is eight pounds when they, when they go for a two week trip to the States. Mm-hmm. Like I can totally get that. I remember going there for, for work a while ago and everything's just, <laughs> you go for a meal in a restaurant they give you like little tubs of, of syrup and yeah. the portions are huge and everything's got so much fructose corn syrup in it. Like how, how are you supposed to resist? Yeah, exactly. Mm. I'm detecting a theme here because again, it's the, you know, the species reflects the environment in which it exists. And you put, you put someone who would have been skinny in some other place you stick them in America and they're going to, they exist in that environment and it's going to change them. And they're not, they're not guilty of being fat or obese. They're, they're a victim of the, culture in which they exist yeah it's not it's not a genetic thing is it so <laughs> i do have a question quickly on fitness because what what if you had to summarize good advice you have one tweet to get out there on how to become as fit as yourself and you and your fellow podcasters what would it say um good question i got i got my one you, okay <laughs> yeah i'd love to hear yours because <laughs> and you can tell me how wrong it is right? It's 90% diet. Okay. You can't run a bad diet. It's 90% diet. Don't eat sugar and only drink water. And when you, when you're not fat, start lifting weights and doing some exercise. <laughs> I can agree with most of that. Yeah. I think we, so we, we have actually got, a, a, I've tried to condense the 400 articles and years of mm-hmm. videos and podcasts into a single page on propanefitness.com forward slash start if you're interested, but it's, uh, it's, it's essentially that, that everybody has bodybuilding goals in quotation marks, but they just don't call it that. They're just not aware of that because a bodybuilder just wants more muscle and less fat. And everyone wants that. They might call it different names. They might say, I want to be toned or I want to, I want to be leaner or whatever the language is. But just because they don't want to step on stage oiled up in a, in a thong doesn't mean that they don't have bodybuilding goals, you know, you're just happy at a certain mm. point along that spectrum. And, you know, it's the classic, like, oh, I don't want to lift weights because I'm scared I'll get too big. It's like, well, are you scared to go for a jog in case you win the hundred meter gold medal? I like the, uh, the goal in, uh, American beauty he says, I want to look good naked. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so in, in that sense, yeah, like everyone should lift weights two, three times a week, maybe some kind of push, some kind of pull, some kind of leg movement, keep it really simple. If you want to go more advanced and make it more complicated, you can, and then eat your calorie target relevant to your goal. If you are not happy with how fat you are, eat a deficit. If you're happy with how lean you are and you want to gain a bit of muscle, eat a slight surplus. And then that that's, that's it. That's the diet and the training. And then, you know, the, within that there's many layers and there's many, um, sub optimizations and things but if, if that was all you did 
you would move towards your goal. Mm. Don't get injured as well. Yeah. yeah, don't, yeah. Go, don't go too hard. Mm. I was doing loads of squats. I got a lot of pain in my hips, and uh, I realised that as you get older, the challenge of exercise is often to not get injured. And like, if I was in my twenties, I just keep you just keep going. You think you're invincible in, when yeah. you're twenty, don't, don't you? Really get injured in the quite the same way. <laughs> yeah, and it's like how much can I do without this hurting so badly that I won't come back to it. And actually that becomes the goal of every training exercise. Absolutely. Because yeah, when you're 20, you can bin yourself every day and you're absolutely fine. And that was, you know, I, I've, I've got a L5S1 disc herniation and it was avoidable because yeah. in my early 20s, I would always be like, oh, you know, that, that shooting numbness down my left leg. I'm sure it's just DOMS. I'm sure it'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And I just kept training on it. And then eventually I I lost uh, sensory motor function of the left leg. I couldn't plantar flex my foot. And it came back after about six six to eight months. But I thought, oh, well, I've finally done it now. And Mm. looking back, you're like, what an idiot. Like I had all the warning signs and I just continued to batter myself. So yeah, I guess the problem is you you tell someone, if, if I had met myself at 20 and I said that, I would have said to my older self, like, oh, come on, mate, you're just being a fuddy-duddy, like, whatever. You just, yeah. you know, I, I wouldn't have listened. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'd be fine. I'm interested in what, what, what made you flip the switch when you were 225 pounds to say, do you know what? That's enough. I'm going to do something about this. One of those, um, one of those people who I think has a big impact on lots of people's lives in, uh, in a micro way. And that was, um, you know, Scott Adams, the Dilbert guy, mm. you know, I, I found him, I found him fasc- fascinating when he predicted the Trump victory, but I find him a fascinating character uh, anyway, but he's, he's a systems versus goals man. He wrote this brilliant book, uh, how to fell almost everything and still win big. It's one of my favorites. I've, I've read his book about Trump. Yeah. Win bigly. Yeah. Win bigly. But the, the yeah. one before that is fantastic. It's full of great advice. Um, and it was he said the systems versus goals thing. It was like, look, if you go through your life aiming for specific things, if you're goal oriented, then the trouble is if you, if you don't achieve that goal, you failed. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you have a system around that goal, then you, you will, you will find benefits from it, whether you achieve your goal in the end anyway, it will put you directionally correct. And so that's a good way to navigate things. So I've been trying to learn guitar for, for years and much like uh, my weight loss thing. Um, I thought, right, I'll, I'll take a systems approach. Like how would, what environment would I exist in for me to get good at playing the guitar? I'd listen to lots of music. So make it easy to listen to lots of music around your mm-hmm. house. Um, I'd have guitars two hand. There's one down here. Oh, amazing. There's one in the office. Uh, there's, there's about five at home. There's one like, so when the kids are, and so I create a construction environment and sure enough, over the course of the last two years, I've got much better at playing guitar. Make it easy. Mm-hmm. It's a big one. With the diet thing, you know, I heard Scott Adams say, look, systems versus goals. And it really clicked. And I was like, yeah, of course. Um, and it was about nu- nutrition, uh, basically always, always be learning about nutrition and diet and keeping yourself healthy. And so I think uh, that sugar film, uh, which was basically sort of 
he he's a healthy guy and he um he eats the recommended daily amount of sugar every day and it actually makes him really ill mm. <laughs> and he becomes hugely overweight and it and it's it's quite disturbing to watch because you can see him making himself sick over the course of this film and it is actually quite a lot of sugar and he's doing the same amount of exercise doing every day and i was like wow i eat a lot of sugar it's it slips into everything i know it sounds obvious but i you know low fat and i was like i, I was cycling 100 miles a week i was we live in canterbury or we live in whitstable uh, you cycle out of canterbury is a massive hill up here and i had a fitbit on and it used to like alarm pretty much every day because it was a 225 pound obese man coming up a hill and I was fit like my legs as they should be when you're trying to lift 225 pounds up a hill every day they were they are strong and my heart was strong but I was massively overweight despite doing all that exercise and it, crazy though it sounded it never occurred to me that I was drinking sugar that sugar was all over my diet and it and it had this really negative effect on me. And I watched that that sugar film and I was like, oh, oh yeah, that's what happened to me. But it was actually education. Mm. It wasn't watching that film per se. It was the fact that that system of continuous education, because I've moved on from that and I continue, you know, continuously read about flexibility, you know, Chris Williamson, yourself, you know, I follow, follow you guys partly because that's part of my system is to make sure that I've got a constant feed of people who are talking about, even, even if it's the fact that people are constantly in my ear talking mm. about fitness is part of the system. That makes so much sense. And you're right that picking the right inputs because your inputs, the books that you read, the podcasts you listen to form the substrate for your thoughts in the future. And so it makes, makes sense to pick that very carefully. And then as you say about making it easy, that by addressing the keystone habit of sugar, the thing which disrupts our satiety, our hunger cues, and ignites our reward centers and all of this, by eliminating that, it makes the subsequent decisions of eating less calories much easier. Mm. And, and so the food industry is kind of doing the opposite. They're making it as easy as possible to overconsume. And so you've just looked at it at the root and said, ah, okay, what is the thing for me? And for you, it was sugar. Right, brilliant. Let's eliminate that and see what the effect is. I love it. Well, I mean, I'm not super healthy, but it certainly, certainly got me on a better kill. Well, the results are trending in the right way. I'd like to go that a little bit more. Maybe I need to get on your program. Flexibility and things like that is an issue in my life. Getting older, things are achy. And All covered on the website. We'll um, I'll send you a link. Don't need to take drugs anymore. I just need to get up quickly. <laughs> That's great. Have you ever seen the Toxoplasma of Rage by um, Slate Star Codex, Scott Alexander? I've not seen it. It's I've a, been, it's a, a few people have mentioned it to me. It's a fantastic article basically about, um, I'm really into memetic viruses. So like the idea that stories, even our own genes are competing information in space. Do you know what? Sorry, I have, I have read this ages ago, but I've completely forgotten what it was about. And the, the basis is that you, the, the things that capture us uh, politically are things that divide us perfectly because, you, you know, if you ever read The Selfish Gene, you know, the Richard Dawkins book, it talks about the fact that we're essentially vehicles for our own genetic material. The, the, the gene is surviving for its own purposes. We just happen to be the carriers of it. And so there's this, there's this sort of positive negative replication going on where if you've got a perfect positive negative replicator, it replicates really, really easily. And so it spreads 
spreads much crazy. Uh, entropy of the universe decreases, which you know in in our solar system, that's what's happening, right? Like, uh, so I'm getting really physics geeky here, but the entropy of the the solar system or, or on Earth particularly is decreasing. Complexity is rising up. We're we're starting to get we're forming sand into glassware and things like that, right? So if that's the general direction of things that you are um, accumulating information, entropy is decreasing, both genetically. That's why we all want to go and shag and get power, and you know, it's to push our genes forward so that they then replicate, and that energy decreases further. Politically, you've got the same thing, but the next layer up. So if you think of genes as just a story, a biological story that that you're transferring around, the same is also true of memetic information. And so it's looking to replicate as perfectly as it can. So if you've got a rape case, for example, and this is the example used in Toxoplasma of Rage, there's a, there's a, there's a kind of perfect point where the, if, if it was someone dragged down an alley, right, like against their will, and it's, it's not contentious at all, everyone agrees that that's wrong. Um, and so it doesn't get discussed. When you get, as was with Chet Evans, the footballer, who got accused of rape because the girl left her handbag in a kebab shop and then went to the police to try and get her handbag back and ended up in a, a rape accusation, even though she really was just getting there to try and get her handbag back from the kebab shop. You know, you get this very contentious issue of, well, she didn't go there to report a rape and it's turned into, you know, it, and so it becomes, uh, I'm not going to get into that particular case, but it becomes yeah, a I've very contentious no, issue. And then, you know, there's one side talking about it. There's one side not talking about it. Bang, 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 bang. Before you know it, that story bubbles up to the surface. Now, if you take that as politically, most elections tend to split 50-50, you know, basically one tribe versus another. Even, even in places like Canada, it's essentially here are the liberal group, here's the conservative group, and they tend to split 50-50, Brexit 50-50. It's because that's the optimal point at which that memetic virus will replicate. Uh, so, okay, but it's not ideal because it pisses off the maximum number of people as well. It pisses off the maximum number of people, but it doesn't care because like you've got a selfish gene, you've got a selfish meme. And, and in mm. ancient times, memetics like religion and stuff had a vested interest in you passing down that story because actually the health of the vehicle of the story was important to its, its right. continuation, right? Don't eat shellfish because if you don't eat shellfish, you're not going to get sick and then you're going to have more children and you're going to pass down the Jewish story to mm. the next, to the next layer. And so you keep going and going and going. And um, uh, so religious stories, <laughs> As, as it speeds up and as you've got things like social media and that transfer of information, it no longer for its own perpetuation and spread and replication needs the host to be healthy anymore. It doesn't care if it leaves you in a daily rage on Twitter shouting pro-Trump or anti-Trump. It doesn't care because it's got what it wanted, which is for you okay. to replicate it as a story. What a does summary! It, yeah, it, it does. It's, it's ringing a bell now, but I'm, I, I feel like that was a much more eloquent description of. Uh, well, actually, that wasn't his article. Like, I, I, I'm interested in systems thinking. I'm interested in memetics. I'm interested in uh, like genetic evolution from a computer science perspective and complex systems. And I saw that article, and I was like, and politics, and I was like, 
you're like something's happening here. Yeah. yeah. And, well, and uh, my nickname on uh, Twitter, I'd like a follow, please. Can that be nice? Of course. Um, is the dopamine devil partly because I've sort of recognized that as an issue and I, and I try to avoid it. It's one of my systems to try and avoid anything that is intentionally toxic that will. That's difficult on Twitter. Make me sick. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's very much, uh, and you're right that the algorithms very much optimize for outrage and it's a way to get easy retweets and likes and stuff. If you post something that people are outraged by, I think it's part part of the reason that that tweet went viral a lot of people because it seemed to it wasn't intentional but it seems to tick the box of people who are pro preservation of the nhs and anti-tory so they're sharing it being like look at this boris look what you've done you've driven this poor yeah. doctor out of it and then you've got people who are outraged by me as a person and they're saying oh this this guy is only following the money and he he doesn't I've got a, well, a little bit of hate of like this, this scumbag doesn't care about his patients and he's just mm. whatever. And it, not true, but it's, it's their projection of what they see. And, uh, and I think that's why, like, if you can use sharing something to self-represent, it goes viral and yeah, the dopamine devil, just. You must have like a, an issue in your business model then to not perpetuate that to be, because obviously part of part of your business model is to get followers and you know one way to do that would be to it be intentionless intentionally contentious to hit that 50 percent mark mm -hmm. you you know go full-on anti i don't know low carb high fat diet just pick something give it some yeah. stick like if you went in and went ah oh, this is so I do a little bit, but I think with fitness, it's kind of been done to death and actually people value mm. a bit of nuance. I, I also can't bring myself to be a total, um, sort of polarized sellout. And like, there's a couple of things where, you know, like I, I have a bit of a tongue in cheek hill that I'm going to die on with kettlebells. What, what, uh, what is the word? Not masquerade sounds ends in aid. Marmalade. Marmalade. That's what it is. Yeah. I've, I've got a, I've got a real marmalade for kettlebells. <laughs> and honestly, like, I just think they're a bit ineffective and a little bit more dangerous than mm -hmm. regular barbell training, but I don't hate them, but I, but I, I make a thing of it online and, you know, make fun of them. And then it polarizes people and you get people, you get angry reply guys in the comments mm -hmm. being like, well, well, I did it. And, but that's, that's as far as it goes. I, I think you're right though. It's, it's, it's easy to do, but I don't think it's good for long-term credibility to always be throwing rocks at your enemies in a marketing sense. Yeah. Mm. Um, people have started to become fatigued to the classic kind of copywriting and ads and marketing approach. And nowadays people favor authenticity. You know, it's coming full circle. It used to be that Vid, uh, automated webinars and chatbots and all this kind of stuff were doing really well. Nowadays, people just want to speak to a human mm. and that's considered valuable in itself. So I wrote something about the vaccine and the, it's lonely in the middle because I, I wrote something that's just like COVID vaccine 101 and ivermectin 101, you know, very, very topical mm. thing at the moment. And you, because you have fanatics on both sides, mm. And there are people who will use ivermectin as a, a symbol of 
the underdog and they will back it so much because it's it's the kind of it's the alternative and it's the it's the secret that big pharma don't want you to know and all all of this kind of spiel and so i just tried to look at the evidence as 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 much as i could and say like here's a bit of a dispassionate view about ivermectin or about uh, about covid and because it's not super pro or super anti it'll piss people off on both sides but you do get people that will say oh thank god some yeah. some reasonable discussion about this that isn't just fanatical and mm. that's the message i'm aiming to build and the the type of branding we're, we're trying to build over time yeah i think that's wise mm. you can have both you can be the good guy and get followership i think you can you um, can you see yeah um it's just that it's it, it it's kind of the the candy floss of quick growth if you if you post a bunch of um and, and actually you, you see it quite a lot with a lot of the, there's a few American, very salesy type people that since 2019 shifted all of the type of content that they have into anti-mask, anti-vax, pro-Trump, mm. whatever, like some kind of political statement. And it's a bit weird to see because you're almost like, whoa, I thought you yeah. were yeah. selling a product that was outside of this. And, mm -hmm. you know, they, and they go heavy into it. I don't, I still don't know whether it's just, something to do with the collective unconscious and that they're just really driven to write about that stuff or if it's a tactic if it's mm. deliberately done because it gets the hits maybe a bit of both mm. I, I don't know what you think Mariah yeah, yeah no, I think I think you're spot on so Chris is much better at, at virality and he does have a, a spin on it he does um post some things that are much more risque than than I would ever consider posting um and it's worked for him mm. so you probably do need to do a bit of it. And if you want to thrust your, your brand into, into the stratosphere. I start posting pictures of myself topless on Twitter. Shall I? Yeah. Go for it. Yeah. <laughs> That's really, I think that was one of the things that was quite contentious that did recently. I can't remember exactly what it was, but I just remember it's flying past. <laughs> like, gosh, yeah. there's a battle going on there, but my system was don't get involved in that. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, the, the, there were a, there were a couple of people on the thread that weren't happy about um, my picture being from on holiday, um, and there's been some stuff in the news, you know, or not, not in, in stuff in um, a female surgeon posted a bikini photo and she got slammed for it, and then people were defending her and saying, "Look, she's mm -hmm. she's allowed, she's a human, she's allowed to go yeah, on holiday, she's not. a human first and a surgeon second. You don't always have to be." Yeah. in scrubs you know it's not <laughs> and yeah. so um i'm glad that that that's starting to be recognized but from an engagement perspective there's the the, the topless photo we found that when i switched from headshot to topless photo the follower count increased so yeah. it is something it, tim ferris did a experiment with scraping the data of dating profiles and he found that pictures which were looking slightly to the left smiling topless or holding a small animal all got higher conversion so he did all four so we just did a photo shoot with him holding a puppy like smiling to the left <laughs> and uh then he got a team of virtual assistants i think four of them across um, pakistan bangladesh philippines and india to post out cold outreach messages to women that matched his criteria saying hello Madam, I am writing on behalf of Mr. Timothy Ferris. I would like to invite you on a date. 
with him. Um, and he gave him a shared calendar, 20 minute slots across five different cafes that he would walk between and rotate Monday, 9am to Friday, 5pm. And he just went on, I don't know, 60 or a hundred dates or whatever. Mm-hmm. Could have been the fact it was Tim Ferriss. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> Let me just say, I am hugely popular. Morsi Award bestseller, Tim Ferriss. Yeah, I'm not sure if I if I did that approach, it would quite go down the same way. But. <laughs> you should try, you know, just for a scientific experiment. It would yeah. make, make for a good video, wouldn't it? So. I think it would. <laughs> yeah. What should we have asked you that we haven't? I mean, it's been a fantastic conversation. I didn't expect things to, did you um, to take the directions that it did. All right. It's very informal. Yeah, very. I think, you know, it is a very small listenership. Like, um, my mum will love this. Hi, mum. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> but the, there is a lot of people who really do want to, to sort mm. out NHS tech. And uh, there's a lot of people who are quite close to NHS digital who listen to this and, and things like that. And it, so there's a lot of movers and shakers of NHS tech in this. So that kind of whole systems approach to things and like what, what, what actually brings about the change you want? How do you design the systems? that sit around the thing you want. Never, never start by like, I want this thing. Like consider what are the conditions in which the thing you want will emerge. Like, and I think about that way about so much in life, even like this company, hopefully we create a company where it's a nice place to work and people will do their best work. I don't feel like I have to stand there for anyone and go, move your hand to the left a bit and then press that key. And, you, you know, if it's like designed them to do the good work, it wouldn't work as well as just saying designing the culture. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's the, the idea of hire good people and then leave them alone. Once the, once the culture and the goal and the everyone's aligned with the direction of the company, often people do better when you, when you actually step away and then the real creative spark comes out. That is something I was going to ask you about with, about the NHS specifically. Is this a matter of just trust when, when you have to apply processes to things, when you've got something that looks like a complex thing, the trouble with medicine is it can branch so many ways, right? Mm. Like um, we uh, had a mother coal um, prescription for my daughter, the impactation routine, and we couldn't, we, they, they gave us the smallest possible box of Movicol because the prescription was like ramping up and then you monitor it and then, you know, you slowly decrease it over time. So it didn't have a set amount. And the, and the, um, when we went to the pharmacist, we were like, look, we're halfway through this protocol. And she was like, I can't, I can't, I cannot give you uh, another box of this stuff. And I'm like, both you and I know. It's over the counter, isn't it? Movicol. Well, yeah, I thought it was, but maybe it's pediatric plan or something because uh, I, I was like, can I just buy it? I, well, I, I'm, I'm not sure, to be honest. The thing that occurred to me was that she she didn't have the trust of the organization employing her, in this case, Tesco's, but you know, mm-hmm. I mean that in a more broader sense, like the NHS doesn't have the trust for people to make complex context-aware decisions about what to do next. And one solution system design for the NHS would, from my perspective, would be just to trust people more. I think you said about a nurse is if nurses were allowed to prescribe paracetamol, 
90% of all calls to doctors would be reduced. <laughs> you, you've really done your, your homework on this one. Well, I'm, yeah. I'm impressed. Um, <laughs> but you, you're, you're totally right. The, the pharmacist is clearly an incredibly intelligent person and has, just by virtue of getting to the point that, she, that she'll be at, she'll have good enough judgment to say like, all right, I'll give you a bit more mobile call. Your daughter's still impacted. I've been taught to do a blast and cruise approach with Mervacol for disimpaction regime anyway. So you you hit them with a load of it first and then you taper down rather than ramp up. Oh, okay. That would have made more sense. But I mean, I'm sure yeah. different people do it differently. Um, but yeah, the the trust thing is is big, and this is because of the medico legal tightrope that people are walking on. And nurses get slammed for mm. stuff. I've seen seen nurses get struck off for the most minor things or get suspended for really, really minuscule kind of things that, and it's because their governing body are pretty militant. They're just, they don't give people second chances. The medical council is a little bit, well, it is a lot more accepting because of how much it costs to, to train a doctor. But as you say, if when there isn't trust, people not only feel like they're being policed, but it creates very much a sense of not my job. I'm going to, I'm going to stay well clear of that. And because of those gaps, it, it does make you think if there was a little bit more leeway and we have to accept that, yes, there is human error. And if there's repeated human error, we need to create a system to minimize that from happening, but give people a bit of judgment with, with things that are like, like a nurse giving paracetamol, you know, we, we can easily create a protocol that says like, here are some of the major contraindications for giving paracetamol. Even when a patient is admitted, a doctor might be able to say, yeah, we can, well, I suppose you can, you can prescribe PRN medication, but nurse prescribing courses, there's no financial incentive for them to do that because they don't get paid anymore to do that, that qualification. So I guess you're, you're, you're right. It comes down to how do you create the systems and incentives such that the direction we're moving in takes people to the optimal outcome. Yeah. It's not, I, I'm sure nurses don't, don't enjoy having to constantly call the doctor and be like, Oh, can you put some paracetamol on the system for, yeah. for this patient? And yeah, I always have this podcast. I just agree with people. I mean, I stop. <laughs> I'm not very practiced at them. <laughs> yeah. I agree with that. correct correct answer do you ever have people on that you are fundamentally opposed to no No, we don't want to hear hear dissenting voices Uh, no actually (laughs) i would i would like to do that we i have a bit of a twitter spat not twitter no actually i don't i don't do twitter spats but we're kind of advocates of this open source open platform approach and there are certainly people who are like, oh God, the hippies are back again, trying <laughs> to flog their open source approach to things. And, you know, I think he's seen as a very kind of politically left organization as well. And, you know, it, it's got that knit your own yogurt feel about it. Right. <laughs> and then there are people who are like, look, these systems aren't bad. Let's stop criticizing them. Generally, I've seen a lot of them. They're very good and stop trying to reinvent the wheel. Let's buy commercial off the shelf systems. Let's, you know, let's, let's enforce interoperability between them. Let's force them to open up their data. And I disagree with that on the basis that it's not a good systems approach. You're trying to put, you're trying to put legs on a fish. You're trying to Mm -hmm. put attributes on those systems, expecting them. You're, 
you're getting somebody, a company that has been rewarded by having vendor lock-in, been rewarded by having data lock-in, and you're trying to force them to have the attributes you want, which is interoperability, you know, uh, social login, all of the things that would break into their ecosystem and their, their stranglehold on, on the market, and you're trying to force them to do it. And so they're the, that's the other camp. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think it would be good for us to talk to those people. There's probably a lot of common ground. Yeah. But I imagine when people are set in their ways, because I, I would have thought with the WordPress model, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but if you you still have the open source code base and then your business offering, your, your enterprise offering just becomes having the servers and the storage and things set up specific to that and yes hosting consultancy and you can also lock that thing down and make your own proprietary stack i'm not against proprietary software personally to me is the design around the ecosystem that rewards smes it's a it's a little it's a way in to change that ecosystem um because it, it works so well in other areas of our life as techies i've built a whole business on the ruby on rails stack which came out of Basecamp which is a project management system that we use ourselves. We, we actually purchased that service. Mm. Their code is locked down, but the fundamental framework, the web framework that they created is open source. And I've built a whole business on it. So, oh, wow. and, and loads of other, but I'm sure your website and other websites will be using uh, React as a JavaScript framework. I was just using WordPress. Yeah. Oh, WordPress. Okay. And, and like the, the plugin model, you know, it's, it, you created a, free market within something that, you know, and I'm, I'm happy to pay for plugins because makes my life easier and it's, it's all interoperable as you say. So, yeah. Well, come and help us build it. Be good. <laughs> well, we could do some more like business minded. I, yeah. I, we could do with um, people who've got a business mindset that can see that kind of system based model of change, trying to change things for the better. I think learning to or attempting to learn to code Oh, no, I don't mean learn to code. Fair enough. I was going to say one of the most humbling experiences um, because it was one of the, I I think I just really overestimated my own ability. And uh, a friend of mine sat me down, gave me a two hour run through and I was like, right, okay. And I started going through it and I'm like, this is complete gobbledygook to me. And I was just like, okay, fine. I've really now got an appreciation for Mm. when developers take a long time to iterate or to bring out a new feature or something. It's it's no easy task. <laughs> no, it's not. I'm glad you said it <laughs> because it's, it's a profession like any other. And um, uh, let's go to another bugbear clinically led solutions in, in software. The idea that everything should be clinically led and you'll know from your own business, how much of your business is actually doing fitness training and how much of it is uh, marketing, finance, accounts, sort of like all the logistics. Most com- most businesses are in the business of business, hiring people, recruitment, getting a culture right, leadership 100%. management, project management, stakeholder engagement. And a hospital is not different. Yeah. The amount of time we spend actually programming, as in do, doing writing fitness programs, it's got to be 2% if that, mm. because there's so much supporting stuff that needs doing yeah 
my, my wife and I, we were thinking about setting up an escape room business about 10 years ago. A digital one or a no, physical one? No, in, in real life one. We went to Las Vegas uh, and did an escape room there and they weren't really a thing in the UK at the time. And we came back and, you know, having set this business up and built it, I was like, escape rooms sound really good fun, but most of that business is going to be some 21-year-old who Saturday and they're supposed to be running a game and they got drunk and they're hungover and they've phoned in sick and you have to go and sort. It's not designing the games. It's not doing the set. <laughs> it's the human problems. Yeah. Every every business is going to be that. I know someone that does digital escape rooms and mm-hmm. uh, she's doing quite well. Um, kind of like hen party yeah. type stuff. Yeah. I've, I've done one physical escape room. That's so stressful. Um, <laughs> <laughs> where like they put the bag on your head and you're handcuffed to the thing and did you do that in canterbury where was it in it was in sheffield maybe that was just me <laughs> yeah you sure it was an escape room <laughs> was it called talk to god it was just a normal trip to sheffield i think <laughs> so much of running a hospital i just think is not actually clinically led and so a clinician looks at everything in terms of like you know prescribing and the health record system and we come in as a workforce company and say you don't know who your staff are (laughs) Mm. you don't don't know how many consultants you've got well i you know onboarding staff i've i've got a friend who you you might you might love to chat to him on the podcast actually he's called asif manaf um he now works for ernst and young he was a he was a, a medical registrar and he would always send me texts about saying, Hey, I'm doing a locum in this new trust and I'm two weeks into it. And I still can't, I still haven't got swipe card access because I'm not recognized as a, as an employee. And so if there's a crash or an arrest call on this ward, I can't get in, you know, it's just like, and he, he would, he would send me kind of updates of like, Oh, so here's email number 43. And I'm now having to contact three different departments to get on the thing. And my, to get it logins so i can't prescribe anything and i have to ask the f1 to do it and like it it does and it's i'm sure it's just because as you say there's six or seven systems that need to recognize a staff member well they they have this big central system esr the electronic staff record which i'm sure you've probably had to deal with at some point in your career the erythrocyte sedimentation rate really hard to access data from for other systems to get in and access an API and pull that information down. It's really, which is one of our projects I'm most proud of. We built this wrapper to extract data out of ESR. Oh, nice. Yeah. So that was, that was really, and we, it's open source, open source project and it's been installed. What's quite nice is Queen Elizabeth hospital in Kings Lynn. We've just came out with special measures. Well done. Queen Elizabeth hospital. Um, They have installed it. So they, they phoned me up and said, oh, we've installed your open source wrapper. So we didn't even touch it. Yeah. It's, really oh, amazing. Cool. it's really nice that someone will just grab it off GitHub and install it and start using it. That is it. very cool. Yeah. I imagine that's the kind of thing that can very quickly just gain momentum. And then it's like, whoa, okay, half the country is using, <laughs> using our API yeah. or our wrapper. Yeah. But again, it's very hard. To, um, it's actually very hard to sell. <laughs> it's hard to get any money for it. Mm. It's uh, the incentives to do that weren't very high I imagine getting the, the the value proposition in front of the right person who recognizes where the the gap is is the problem 
it is no one's department, right? That's the trouble <laughs> with VSR. It's middleware application. It's the application that allows door entry access. It's the application that allows rostering. It's the like it's the application that allows bank staff, job planning, capacity management, demand management, um, uh, role-based access control for your, for your patient record system. Mm-hmm. You know, it's so you're not selling a useful thing to any one of those people because they don't care. And like, yeah. so they don't, they don't, they're not, they're not aware that the thing that makes their life easier or not, they're not aware, but it doesn't sit in their remit. So it's a very hard thing to sell because it's the thing that opens the door for, literally <laughs> for everything else that sits around it. And, and no one sits in that department, not even workforce. That's frustrating. Yeah. I <laughs> would, if anyone from NHS Digital is listening, please, gods of NHS Tech, if you are listening, something that I would love to see is the equivalent of what is social login of Twitter, Facebook, Google for the NHS. And it, and it is a really easy service to build. Like the, it's called OAuth. So mm. it's, it's like an OAuth interface for staff that can log in. And ironically, if you, I could log you in as a patient easier than your role as a staff <laughs> member. You know, it would be easier to find you as, as a patient and get your NHS login because they do have an OAuth service. So you could do NHS login, but I don't have any of your details as a staff member when that when that id profile comes back i think luckily my trust was quite good i only had two or three systems to log into but i know of some that you know for a day job in psychiatry they've got to log into seven systems before they can Mm. do their daily stuff and it's different passwords different usernames for each thing yeah there you go well i hope (laughs) this has been fun yeah but like this has honestly been one of the most fun podcasts i've been on ever oh Thank you. And mum, because my mum will be listening. This is the man that's the reason that you bought me a B-Day for Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't realise that came from you. That's the funny thing. I assumed it I assumed it was Chris Williamson's idea, but that was Well, Chris Williamson appropriates all of my best ideas and and monetizes them. So I've got um a video called Five Tips to Have the Best Poo of Your Life. That's amazing. Squatty potty. Is that on there? Squatty potty is on there. Yeah. <laughs> Believe it. Great, great shot. <laughs> That's the next thing your mom needs to buy you, Kevin, is a squatty yeah. potty. <laughs> Spotty potty. Squatty potty. And unkinks the rectal shelf and oh, allows better evacuation. That'd be good for the impactation. Yeah, it's amazing. It is amazing. It is good. <laughs> um, there's no 10 packs of mother call, though. Go on that note. Thank you so much, Yusuf. Appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you to all our listeners who tuned in to today's episode of Sardisms. Like most, Yusuf still has a soft spot for the NHS, but knows there needs to be a culture shift to help make it run more efficiently. Follow Yusuf on Twitter at ProPainFitness. You can find out more about Sard by visiting sardjv.co.uk or send us a tweet on Twitter at sardjv and use hashtag Sardisms. Until next time, have a great week. Mm-hmm.